So, Berto, this is our 700th episode. What? 700. But we just said it was like 600 and something a few months ago. Yeah, 700 episodes. What the heck? How, How do you feel about that? 700. Like, I don't think I've done 700 of anything in my life. Yeah. Wow. Of nothing? You've, nothing. you've probably taken a step 700 times. You've... I don't think so. <laughs> well, yeah. But I mean, like, that's a big deal. 700. Imagine if you had written 700 books or yeah. if you had done 700 trips to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> small, yeah. small things like, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much analogous to that. Wow. The last time we did an episode that highlighted a particular number. Yeah. Was at three hundred. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah, which was uh, oh, man, which was three years ago. That's crazy. Three years ago, we did. Our... So we've more than doubled it in less than the time. Yeah. So when we started doing Patreon yeah. and we started actually getting funding to do this thing, it finally freed me up anyway to yeah. dedicate a lot more time, and therefore, yeah, we've made many more episodes. Yeah. So I, I actually, I'm a list maker i keep track of lots of different things right and one of the things that i've kept track of is the amount of hours i've spent on this podcast <laughs> oh my god and i've spent f- about f- 5500 hours on this on this podcast wow <laughs> you you have spent about 500 oh uh, man hours on this podcast which Still sounds a lot of hours. which sounds like not that much but you know i mean 500 hours. imagine playing a video game for 500 hours i mean yeah <laughs> So most video games, like the games that I remember that I, that felt like I spent a chunk of my life, yeah. it was like a hundred hours, 120. Yeah. Yeah. But like, so, so, so over 5,000, you know, a typical job full time is like 2000 hours. Yeah. So it's like, it's almost like three years of a full time job yeah. that I did on, on the side while I right. had, while I had full time jobs and, and, and I was crazy, in graduate. Dude. Um, so we will reach um, one thousand. Six hundred podcasts. We'll reach one thousand in the year twenty twenty in two years. Whoa. We'll reach two thousand in eight years in the year twenty twenty six. The year two thousand and twenty six. How do you feel about that? Reaching the the number two thousand. That seems like we should beat it. Beat it. <laughs> so. Now, I didn't know how to celebrate, so I thought I would just do things around the number 700. Ooh, like the 700 Club. Like the 700 Club. So according to Wikipedia, 700 is a natural number following 699 and and preceding 701. Nah, come on. That's a coincidence. It's a Harshad number, a.k.a. a Niven number. Do you know what those are? No. You wanted to be a mathematics major. Yeah, I should know what Niven numbers are. I wanted to be a mathematics major, too, in in high school. And then I took, or in college, and then I actually took high math and thought, this is, I get that, you know, I get the usefulness of this, but my God, it's boring. It was just so, I I was just like, the only reason why I'd be interested in this is because I want to prove to other people that I get it or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) See, I, I actually loved... Proofs. Oh, I loved proofs. Yeah. Well, like calculus up till cat, but like beyond. No, no, I mean, yeah. Beyond calculus, when you get into like imagination kinds I of love that stuff, man. I just, I mean, I, I got the creativity and yeah. I, I liked the sort of history because you go back to like, you know, ancient Greeks yeah. and they're, you know, like I, but the depth that 
uh, UW high level math classes required right. of you. It was so much work, and it was yeah. just like, why, you know? Oh, yeah, you got to love it. That's yeah. that's no question. <laughs> um, so a Harshad number or a Niven number is an integer that is divisible by the sum of its digits. Oh. So it's it's I think they call this recreational math or something. Yeah. It's not like it's it's just like fun math. Right. So if you add seven and zero and zero, you get seven, and therefore it divides into itself. Mount. So in the year seven hundred, looked it up in Wikipedia. What happened? And what do you think happened in the year seven hundred? Well, let's see. In the years in the year seven hundred, uh, the Roman Empire was. Uh, Gone. Gone. Yeah, it was declined. Except the Byzantines. Byzantine was going strong. And the were the Mongols invading? Uh, was that around that time? I don't know. Or was the Huns? No, the Huns were invading. Yeah, the Mongols were later, right? Yeah, they the were like Huns the were invading. 1300s. Um, well, uh, I don't know, but the things that I wrote down were Mount Edziza, a volcano in British Columbia, just north of here. Ooh. It erupted. Holy crap. So a large, it's actually a volcano complex that erupted in in British Columbia. Very close. You don't to hear it. about that in the mainstream media. The Wari people invaded and occupied the Cusco Valley in modern Peru. The uh, Wari, the Wari, Wari people. people. Okay. So they know that because you know they kept very yeah, good yeah. you know track of their time. So that's that. And I mean, when you think of the number 700, what do you think of? Like any associations? Yeah, so seven is a perfect number, according to very various numerology uh, traditions. It's a prime. It's also a prime. Um, but it's, it, a, it's supposed, it's like the, it's often people's lucky number. It's a, it's it's a lucky bi- number seven. It's, it's a the, biblical lucky number. That's right. It's the most common number you can roll <laughs> when you roll the dice. Two dice. Um, but yeah, when you roll two dice, and it is, and when you roll two six-sided dice, yeah. um, it, it was considered. Um, so six was sort of considered an incomplete, and therefore sort of the devil's number. But seven was considered complete and God's number. I wonder why it's so interesting. Well, it is interesting. Uh, part of it has to do with um, the fact that seven is 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 odd, but it's got this. This thing where you have seven can be the result of four plus three, seven can be the result of six plus one. Seven is also like if you draw it out, you can make this um, like the do- the way the configuration of the dots are right. Like you could have six perfectly arranged dots and then a, a, a seven dot in the middle, and it forms this like little beautiful pattern. But I also I also think that um, there was something to associate with like in the Bible it mentions six 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 as the right. number of the beast, yeah. and um, you know, so and and who knows? There's probably a ton of like things that you could pick out. Of, like, well, here they said seven this, seven that, so seven must be God's number. Well, it's interesting because in the East they have a whole different set of numbers that they consider to be uh, lucky and unlucky. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like not inherent in right. human or even in mathematics. Right. You know? Yeah, there's not. The, I mean, certainly seven is a prime number, but it's not. Um, in fact, uh, many believe that six and and three and nine are are glorious numbers, you know. And so it's one of those weird. Do you have a favorite number? Uh, yeah, I forty two. No, I actually my favorite number in general is sixty nine. Why? It started off somewhat immaturely. <laughs> oh, it is your favorite it, number. It is, yeah. 
Uh, and, and originally, I, I must admit, it started when I was a teenager. You never disappoint, Berto. But, but uh, what I will say is that I grew to appreciate the symmetry of that number. And first of all, it, you know, if you draw it, it's like it's yin and yang, right? Because uh, you can draw the six and the nine like they're yin and yang. So yeah, yeah. Yin and yang. Um, and it is – so a little bit of rebellious. If 70 is meant to be a perfect – you know, multiple of seven, the perfect number. I like the fact that it's just one shy of that. You know, mm. um, I also, I also think it's it's great because the um, it's divisible by three, and I like numbers that are divisible by three mm-hmm. uh, because well, who doesn't? Well, yeah, well, because three, I three is I would say my second favorite number. Mm. Anytime I'm doing lists or I'm telling you the top end things, I usually go for three. Three is a nice, stable base. Three, is, and so I, I feel like the fact that sixty nine is divisible by three makes it better in my mind. You know, so there's a lot of reasons like that. Hmm. Well, thank you, patrons, for getting us this far to this boring segment of Psychology in Seattle, which is the name of this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkonda. I am a therapist and a professor. Who are you? Who are you, Berto? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I am a clockmaker. So I thought we would spend this episode just. Just gabbing, just just you and me, just kicking back, mm-hmm. talking about random stuff. So, if, so listeners out there, if you're wanting some hardcore psychology stuff, I'm actually working on some deep dives that I'll get into next week. But for this week, it, it's it's mainly short topics and and other kinds of stuff. So I apologize for that in advance. Yay! All right. Uh, so, do you have a gripe, Berto? I do. Tell me your gripe. Okay. So. And I have been guilty of this, so but it's a lot of my gripes are usually things that I've been guilty of. Let's say you're running late somewhere, right? And you I almost never run late. <laughs> yes, but let's say you did. And you show up late. And the people that were waiting for you are like, uh, what happened? And you go, Oh, don't even ask me. I don't want to talk about it. You know, like your reaction is to be angry. And angry at the person who asked you? Well, angry at something, and you don't even want to talk about it. So uh, it's like you had a little anger and a little crypticness to it, uh, and that's supposed to make it okay, uh-huh. right? So, for example, like, did you break my 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 mug, my psychology in Seattle mug? It's like, oh, don't even get me started on that. No, I don't even want to have this conversation. <laughs> Wait, what? Like that kind of thing. It drives me nuts because you have a perfectly reasonable complaint. That this person directly is responsible for. Yeah. And not only are they not apologizing, they're turning it around. And whether they're angry at you, or they're angry at something, and they don't even want to talk about it. This, <laughs> and, and you imagine it's not legitimate? Oh, it's totally not legitimate. Oh. For example... They're trying, I, to, they're trying to... It's a smokescreen. It is a smokescreen. Uh, for, uh, in fact, I know it's a smokescreen because I've done this before. <laughs> but I remember being in a meeting one time, and it was a whole bunch of us. It's funny. Members. It would never occur to me to do that, but it would totally work. Well, it, it sadly does work. Yeah. Depends on no the one wants context. To, especially, yeah, if you're in a work meeting, no one in the middle of everyone's going to be like, no, tell us your horrific. Right. Because they're going to go, oh, was it, were they a right. doctor or what, okay. was it their, was it their <laughs> wife? Or, you know, like what was, you know. So, so I was in a meeting uh, many, many years ago as, as a whole bunch of us uh, clockmakers and we're in a, in a closed room meeting and the meeting started, say, at 10 a.m. in the morning, right? 
like at 10.15, and this is a, maybe an hour-long meeting, but at 10.15, one of us that ha- was supposed to be there at 10 shows up. We all sort of like, stop, look. Without a word, this person comes, sits down, and drops their head to the desk on their arms oh. and doesn't say anything. Sounds a little histrionic. Oh, yeah. And we're all like, uh. And so no one asks. No one acknowledges. We just continue with the meeting. And the person is like that. Like, I th- I'd like to say almost the entire rest of the meeting. Do you think that person wanted someone to pay attention to them? I, I could imagine. I, but but I, I couldn't tell if it was like they're doing this because they don't want to say they they know they're super late or they they're don't acknowledge it. or they're legitimately suffering from something horrible i would have bought that if i didn't know the the drama the, level that the, this person the source, engaged okay. in. yeah and 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 so but this has happened you know so many times i i will say for me usually when i've done it it is cuz i was and and the way it usually played and i don't do it anymore as much but it usually was like this i was running late to my therapy in seattle my 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 uh, uh psychotherapy and it was usually because of traffic, but honestly, it's because I, I left too late and there was bad traffic, right? And I would get there and it was like an hour session and I would get there like 10 minutes late and I would come in and rather than just be like, I'm so sorry, this happens too frequently. I, I really need to just change my mind about how soon it is that I think that I need to leave, right? Instead, I'd walk in and I'd be like, oh my God, Seattle traffic is the worst. I, I swear, I might have to move out of the city. And what was great is my therapist would not take the bait. You know, she'd be like, wow, you seem really angry about this. Why do you think you're so angry? And I'd be like, no, no, no. No, it's, it's not, like, this is always the case. Like, this is just so bad. It's like, but what, what's happening right now? Like, like, let's talk about what's happening right now. Like, no, nothing's happening. It's just, it's just so <laughs> terrible. You know, and it was so, so great. It took me several of these where, where I was like, oh, and by the way, at the time, you know what I was doing? Back then, I would, remember we were talking in another episode about uh, Laura Ingram or Dr. Laura and, uh, yeah, and then the uh, Michael, uh, or was uh, oh, yeah. uh, the, the show that's not by convicted wackos, no, yeah, right? Um, yeah. Okay, but at the time, I was also listening to Michael Medved and Michael Abrash and Rush Limbaugh and all these things, and and to quote unquote research the other side or whatever but it would drive me so batty and upset and so it was the double whammy I'd be like oh and, and, and on top of that I was listening to the radio and oh my god they were talking about the most stupid thing and then she was just like wow and then I remember when she connected it for me she was like so you've told me about your father and how he used to like yell at the television and I was like oh <laughs> it, it, was, it was just a really interesting thing but I used to do that I used to deflect so instead of just acknowledging what had happened and, and that, trying that, to... That you're late. That I'm late and that it and is that under my control. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were worried about disapproval from your therapist. Yeah, that, but I, I didn't even consider that, but yeah. Yeah. And you were defending by... Right, by exactly. being angry and, exactly. and maybe even a little entertaining with your anger. Absolutely. But it was never angry at her. It was angry at some other thing. Yeah. The thing that made me late. I'm yeah. a victim. I am a victim. Interesting. So, but that is one of my gripes of breath. <laughs> well, we always hate the things that we do. Yes. So my gripe is about Cortana and about people who claim that Siri always works so well. You don't like the Halo games? What's wrong with you? I love the Halo <laughs> games. I actually 
uh, about a year ago bought a, a, on you know Xbox Live or whatever the Master all, Chief Collection all five oh, okay digital and proceeded to go back through every single episode uh, every single you know version yeah back to back. Yeah. Which was amazing because you know I actually played each Halo game as they came out. Yeah. It was a, it was a few years between each one. Oh, many, yeah. And it was amazing that actually I in my head I thought well, in my head I was like well one was really fun and then maybe four was okay. Actually, all of them are great games. Yeah, I I so I think uh, was it five that I got to when I was when I there was one of them where it was like. The 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 gameplay was a little annoying. Are you thinking of ODST? Well, no, I I hated that one. Yeah, I didn't even try to. Okay, play replay. well, for me, I don't. I've never played five, um, so I can't comment on that one. I didn't care for four, honestly. Was four the one where you're doing a lot of long range firing? Yeah, and it's got the little Prometheans that dissolve into little fireflies. Yeah, I didn't I like think, that one. I think that was okay. Anyway, my point is, is that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I know Cortana. I grew up with the, yeah. the woman, Jennifer, right, right. Je- Jenny Taylor. In fact, yeah. I was just looking through my old uh, videos that my dad took of me in high school and stuff, and there's plenty of Jenny. Oh, wow. Plenty, plenty of, of Cortana. Yeah, she grew up just like a block away from me, and yeah. uh, my sister was like best friends with her sister. Like, right. So me and Cortana, the real person, go way back. But anyway... Uh, you know, I, I got a new laptop and it has Windows on it, and there's just a ton of Cortana in it. Features, yeah, yeah, that you have to slowly turn off. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. It's just like, no, I don't want to talk to my laptop. <laughs> you know what I mean. And two, it never works. Like I have a Pixel phone that is made yeah. by Google. Yeah, and the OK Google thing is supposed to work. Right, it works ten percent of the time. Right, and so it's like. But even if it worked only ninety, if it worked ninety percent of the time, I still wouldn't use it. Because what if your mouse only worked ninety percent of the time? Right. What if what if your car only got you to work ninety percent? You'd be like, no, no, that's I'll, unacceptable. I'll, I'll do some other mode. Yeah, of and course. so so it's like because I don't want to that because the ten percent of the or whatever percent of the time that Siri or OK Google or Cortana or Amazon when these things. The, the times they don't work, it's so, <laughs> so frustrating. Much. It's yeah. so frustrating. And it's funny because, um, you know, um, Upton, he yeah. has he has an Echo. And so I was he over... He has an Echo? He has an Echo. He has an Echo. He has an Echo. Okay. And I went over to his house and he's like, oh, man, it's amazing. You know, because he, he has all the setup. He has like the, the Nest and the, oh, really? and the video cameras and the... Which I think is Google. But anyway, it, it just... Yeah, he, Nest he, is Google. He, he, he's into all that kind of stuff. Okay. And he's like, man, it really, it, it's just, it's just life changing. Change your life. He's like, you need to get one of these. And I'm like, oh, and he's like, you know, and, and it's, you know, he's like, come in here, you know. And he's trying to demonstrate it. Yeah. And he's like, you know, in fact, you know, we could probably listen to your podcast. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, no, don't worry about it. He's like, no, no, no. Uh, okay. You know, or whatever. Alexa. Alexa. Uh, you know, let's listen to Psychology in Seattle podcast. We probably sat there for 20 minutes trying to make this thing work. It never worked. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and then he's like, okay, okay, never mind that. Maybe, maybe pot, name a song, and I'm like, okay, okay, you know. And then I name a song. It doesn't play the right song. Oh, but you probably picked a really random, obscure. Well, one. I don't know what went wrong, but something yeah. went wrong there. And then it just proceeded to never really work right. <laughs> and there were several times when because you have to oh say a word to activate it, and sometimes if you don't say something quick enough, it'll turn off. 
so that mm-hmm. it doesn't hear you asking something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so there's all this fits. Start. Anyway, my point is, is that um, all that is annoying me. <laughs> you know, I was in a meeting today with clockmakers and I, I, I all of a sudden I got a, a, a bing on a, a ding on my watch. My, I have one of these smart watches, the uh, Apple watch. Yeah. And I look at it and it, it's got all the text of what I've been saying for the last, like, I don't know, three minutes or five minutes. Oh, my God. And I'm like, but at first. And it texts it to, like, someone. Well, but at first, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm think, I actually thought I had just received a text message from someone. <laughs> and, I, and, and you know how you don't necessarily keep every word you've said in the, in the tip of your mind. But when I'm starting reading, I'm like, this sounds so familiar. And I'm like, wait a minute. Has this thing been recording me? Or did someone just text me exactly the thing right. I just said? So I must have said like, hey, Siri, which is going to trigger it. Uh, but I must have said that, uh, but not said it. I must have said something that sounded like right. it. Like, hey, seriously, right? Like, right. hey, seriously. Right. And then it started recording. I don't even know what the trigger word would be if I wanted to have that happen. I don't know how to do it. Right. Like if I'm like, oh, I, I want to record the following really quickly. Hey, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the only legitimate usefulness is listening to music. I have actually yeah. seen people use it to the if they, but it, it's, but it's like, how hard is it to just, you know? Well, I, I will say this: I have an Apple HomePod now. It's their their version of the Echo or whatever. Like, so it's it, a Siri. It's pod. a Siri thing. Now, even though Siri in general, I don't use it for my phone and things like that. It sits there on top of my piano. And all I use it for, all I use it for is because I have Apple Music. So I just use it for playing music. Right. And I'll say, that's pretty nice because I can go, hey, Siri, play Beatles, let it be. Now, here's where it does get tricky because all of a sudden it's like, which one? Oh, or well, you know what? I hate this. I was like, hey, Siri, play the long and, uh, the long and winding road. And you know which version it starts playing? The one from, from Give My Regards to Broad Street. Uh, Which is it's it's not that great. That's 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 Paul McCartney. It is still Paul McCartney, but but it's it's, not the Beatles. But it's not the Beatles. And so then I have to say, play the Long and Winding Road from Let It Be. And you know what it does? It plays Let It Be. So it's still not great, but at least maybe seventy percent of the time it works for me. But (laughs) to me, what I what I have my setup is I have an iPad that half of its use is this, and it's hooked up Bluetooth to, to my. A sound bar on my TV. Yeah, and so I go to my sound bar. I click a. I just hit a button. It goes Bluetooth, and then my iPad is is has yeah. has Spotify, and, and then you just use that. And then I just click on that, right. and boom. And I have all my playlists on there, and I you know, and because sometimes I don't know if I just off the top of my head think, well, what song do I want to listen to right now? I'd really be limited. But when yeah. I see it on Spotify or I have a radio station on Spotify, it's like. Anyway, my yeah, point Kirk, is is that Kirk, there are other you're ways. Not, you're not thinking this through because imagine you have a really heavy lift day and the next day you're lying in bed, you can barely move your arms. Yeah. What are you going to do then? Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, so I want, before going into the break, I just want to rattle off some of the, I don't know why I have this thing. I just like talking about recent movies that I've seen. Okay. And I know we just talked about this last week, but I've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> oh, since last week? Since last week, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Like, for instance, I saw Unsane. Which is a new movie by Steven Soderbergh. Unsane. Unsane. What? And people have been asking us to talk about it because it's crap. it's about a woman 
Claire Foy, the the uh, Queen Elizabeth from mm. The Crown, is breaking out from her role, okay. and she's in this movie. Steven Soderbergh, you know him, yeah. And it is a movie about a woman. We I'll just tell you the the kind of the very beginning because it's very twisty. So okay. and I won't spoil it, but she is at work and she seems to be struggling with some mental issues of various okay. kinds, and then. She goes to a therapist at a new town, I think, because she moved for a job. Okay, and the and then she is and then she just wants to talk with a therapist, but somehow people are misunderstanding her, and what they think is that she wants to be hospitalized or that she needs oh. to be hospitalized. So then they basically forcibly hospitalize her. Holy shit! And she's like, "I need to get out of here." Oh my God! And then like. From there, and but but the you don't know is she actually right. uh, mentally Maybe ill? She is mentally ill, yeah. or is she completely sane? And they're victimizing, and, yeah. And because you could kind of get a little batty if you're right. sudden, you know. So that's the that's the conceit at the oh, beginning. Dude, I totally want to watch this. It's and then called it, Unsane. Unsane, and it takes a okay. lot of twists, which I think are quite satisfying. I give it 7 out of 10. Is it done? Is it a one-shot, or is it a series? That... Just a one-shot. Okay. Yeah. And I thought it was it was pretty good. It got pretty good reviews. It's Oh, it's a movie, you said. It's is a movie. it in, in the theaters? Yeah, it just came out in the theaters. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to talk about... I mean, the thing I, I guess I'll say about the movie is that I gave it some thought, and I actually want to talk with Michael Drain from the Unpopular Culture podcast because he actually worked in facilities like this, and I and I never have. But from my impression of these kinds of facilities is that it's a possible situation for someone to be falsely, so to speak, in, imprisoned mm-hmm. in sure. a in a institution for a brief amount of time. Yeah. One, insurance doesn't pay for things forever. And two, there are laws in every state about how long you can involuntarily detain someone who doesn't have any um, signs of being a harm to themselves or other people. Um, so I will say that the the movie, in some way, it could... The, everything that happened... I, I, at, first, at first, when I got done with the movie, I was like, there's no way that would happen. Okay. But then I thought, it's like, well... It could, <laughs> it could happen because essentially, well, I won't. I won't. Yeah, spoil don't spoil it. it. I'll watch it, and we can. T- we should talk about it. Okay. What if I have a homework assignment? Yeah, uh, I watched Downsized. Yeah, I gave That's it. That's the a, Mark, uh, Matt, Matt Damon. Damon. He gets small. Yeah, it got bad reviews. It did. Yeah, but I liked it. I gave it a okay. six out of ten. the The setup is amazing. I really loved like the first half. Yeah. The the ending though was so quick. Oh. It's just very... And okay. didn't really seem to resonate with okay. me. It's almost like they didn't know how to end it or they didn't know how to set up the ending. But I, I thought it was I thought it was really great. Um, there's some questionable racial issues in the mm. movie because there's this Vietnamese woman, immigrant, who has a very pronounced comical accent in some mm. ways. But as an Asian person myself... I, it didn't bother me, but right. I could see how some people would be put off by it, being like, okay. is this insensitive to Vietnamese people? But And I suppose it could be in some ways, but anyway. Saw Isle of Dogs. Have you seen it? <gasps> it's out? It came out, yes, two days no ago. No way! I saw it opening night, yeah. What, what'd you give it? You know, 
I gave it seven. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, uh. the, the, okay, but I will say that several Wes Anderson movies I have to watch a second time. Okay. In order to fully appreciate, like even like Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah. The first time I watch any Wes Anderson movie, I'm so kind of like overwhelmed with the stimulation. Yeah. That I don't really know what to pay attention to. I see. And so I need to watch it again. But well, I think that, that, that the look of it is amazing. The, it's kind of unique for Wes Anderson because it's set in Japan. I it's, wonder if this is what happened with me and the Amazing Mr. Fox. That remember you and Mitch were like, oh my God, it's so great. It's so great. And then I watched it. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. You need to rewatch it again. Maybe it's because I need to rewatch it. Again. So I rewatched it in preparation for Isle of Dogs on uh, you know the night before, yeah, and and loved it even okay. more on okay. a like a fourth or fifth right, time watching watch it. Because I mean, I will say um, it was love at first sight for me with with uh, the first the the Royal Trinity with you Ru- know Rushmore, Bottle Rocket, yeah, and, and the Royals and Royal Tannenbaum. Yeah, those three yeah. were, I didn't have to, it was no. like, I might have to watch that again. Right. I mean, even um, like Life Aquatic, I had to watch a couple times to, to f- appreciate. Darjeeling, definitely yeah. second or third time, yeah. I liked it better. The first time I, you and I saw Darjeeling yeah. together, and I remember just being right. like, I don't know about this one. Although Moonrise Kingdom, I did like right off the bat. Totally, just, totally. Yeah. And the Grand Budapest Hotel, I've only seen that once, by the way. I yeah, me watch, too. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, the problem with Isle of Dogs to me is the story, it's the story. Like they I see. it's the ending doesn't doesn't I don't know, just lacked something. Okay. And cuz normally in a Wes Anderson movie, like in Moonrise Kingdom, it's sort of epic. Yeah. You know, and and you you really feel for uh, Sam and right that you really want them to get married so to speak and you know there there's a yeah. there's a goal. But in this one, it it just I don't know it didn't it didn't really deliver in that way. Oh. Plus, and people are talking about this is that Wes Anderson has sort of a track record of not being the best white person when it comes to this sort of thing. White person? Well, because he has a he has a lot of token. Oh yeah, yeah, he always does. Yes, people of color. You know what yeah. I mean? He'll he'll often have like an Indian. Right. Like, and they're usually uh, com- comedic relief and servants, you yes. know. And and although I'm sure time won't, you know, do well with those kinds of things. But I, but oh, yeah, I've never been like f- super put off because to me, I guess I'm just an apologist for Wes Anderson on some level. But also, uh, I feel like he could just completely not have any characters of of color in, in his movies. You know what I mean? Well, I also always and, felt... And in the Grand Budapest Hotel, like the main guy is yeah. is a person of color. I always felt, and I could be wrong about this, but I also felt he was going for this like 1920s pulp like right. sensibility. Right, exactly. But imagine if he went further back and had black people. Sure. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, no, no, it, you're right. I could see how it's difficult, but, but you know, yeah, but it's sort of like... Can you not make? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. There's yeah. some. There's some problems. There's some problems. And he's from the south, so it's yeah. not like it's. It's not. I see. You know, it, it's not. I never like, thought of that, but you're right. It yeah, is. it's a little problematic. Yeah. It's to me, it's not horrible. This movie is being attacked for those reasons by some people. I'm a Japanese person. <laughs> yeah. And none of it. None of it bothered, bothered me at all. And okay. I'm really curious what Japanese nationals will think of it. 
But there was one thing that bothered me in that basically there are two lead characters. There's there's a Japanese boy mm-hmm. who speaks Japanese the entire right. movie. And the and dogs her, speak English, right? And the dogs speak English. Yeah. Uh, and his, the boy's name is Atari, which is interesting. Right. <laughs> which I don't even know if that's a first name, by the way. Isn't Atari war or something? I don't know. I don't know enough Japanese to know that. But the other lead character is a girl voiced by Greta Gerwig, who is a white foreign exchange student. From the previews, I thought she was a Japanese albino girl. Okay. Because I was like, oh, it's set in Japan. Oh, that girl, it's the girl with, I don't know if you've seen it, but she has a big white sort of fro. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's funny. They they, they made a, a an albino girl, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because you can have albino Japanese people. True. But they made her an American, and she's like kind of like the savior of the of the whole Japanese culture. Uh, and she's an American exchange student, weird. you know. And it's like you made a movie. You, you did so many things, Wes Anderson, to make this set in Japan, right? To be an homage to Kurosawa, to the right. art, to art, to uh, anime, and then one of them, in fact. Atari, the Japanese kid, in some ways is secondary to this girl. And it's like, why not just make her Japanese? Like, why did you have to make her a white girl? Like, she's, she's, I just turn her Japanese. I think, yeah. I think she's the only white person in the entire movie. Just turn her Japanese. Right. I really think so. Right. (laughs) Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, like I said, I watched it again and I raised it from a rating of eight to a nine. Oh, I think some Wes Anderson movies just get better. Get every better time. with age. I watched Wind River with Jeremy Renner and the Olsen younger sister, and it's about. Uh, and this is you talk about um, cultural appropriation. It's about two. So Jeremy Renner, white guy, is Jer- remind me who that is. He is he uh, the he's the archer. Eagle Eye, the yeah. What's his name? Yeah, <laughs> Arrow guy. Yeah. Arrow guy. <laughs> And uh, this is the you, episode, you, the psychology of arrow guy. <laughs> well, he's the useless arrow guy in the Avengers. Uh, I mean, you have, you have, um, you know, vision who can literally change reality. <laughs> right. And you got a guy with a bow. <laughs> right. You know? Anyway, so, um, Hawkeye, Hawkeye. <laughs> so, uh, Jeremy Renner is a hunter, on uh, uh, in an Indian reservation area. Okay. Like in the Midwest somewhere, I think. And he um, is friends because he married a Native American woman. Okay. But they're divorced now. And there's a murder. So it's a murder mystery kind of cop procedural kind of thing. And then the Olsen girl is an FBI, a young FBI agent. Oh, it's one of the Olsen twins? No, no, the the younger one. Right? Isn't she an Olsen girl? No, no, no. There's the twins and then there's their their younger sister. Well, then but, it's not an... Oh, wait, they had sisters. Yeah. Oh. Anyway. Okay. So, uh, she, you know, super white, blonde okay. girl. She is an FBI agent. She comes on the reservation and proceeds to take over the investigation. Meanwhile, the Native American police are completely ineffectual and and oh. re- it requires this white hunter guy and this white... FBI agent. How does this get approved these days? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, and so, and it's it, it's so overt. It's almost like a parody of this kind of right. Because, like, okay, so I don't think every movie has to be like you know one way or the other. But every movie is one way. 
but, and they're but, still the same way. <laughs> and you want to? They clearly wanted to make a movie about a, a reservation because there's a lot of yeah. Native American culture uh, presence. You right. know what I mean? And I will say that it actually won some Native American like an Oscar award. Uh, okay. So it's not like Native Americans universally hate the movie. Okay. Do you know what I mean? But you clearly clearly wanted to make a movie about Native Americans. Why do you need two white people to be in there? You know what I mean? Like, why do they have to be the the protagonists? Why not? Well, the whole thing is like that the the Jeremy Renner character. There's nothing about him that needs to be white, right? And the FBI agent. There's nothing about her that needs to be white either. She could have been anything. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, anyway. So now, if it was just one movie and that's what I'm thousands saying. of others but yeah. when you see this happen right. again and again and you're a person of color like us it's just like yeah. come on that's that's what I was saying if it was like, like it's not Emma's, that every movie has Emma to be. Stone is Asian in Hawaii in yeah. that Cameron Crowe movie it's like yeah. come on it's like anyway I uh, watched but I gave it a five I, at first I was like oh this is kind of good seven and then I was like uh two and then at the very end, I was like, it has this really great shootout scene in the end. Okay. <laughs> kind of got up. I, so anyway, you got to three. <laughs> I, re- I texted you. I rewatched Mother. Right. Mother! And I, I originally had it at a seven, and I bumped it up to an eight. Nice. It, I think it's, if you like this movie, I think it's rewatchable. Oh, I've wa- I watched it twice in the theater. I certainly will watch it again. Will watch. Uh, watched Despicable Me 3. Came out last year. What? Uh, three? I love all these Despicable Me movies, but yeah. the Despicable Me three, aside from the first twenty minutes, it's it's okay. Okay, but the but they have the best villains in this in this series. <laughs> Wait, which is the one where it was his brother or something? So that's three. That's three. Yeah. So the story's kind of a mess. It, I see. It there's they. It's like okay, well, you need to have your cute minion story, and you need to have your Gru story, and you, there's there's too many stories. Is 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 the second one minions, or is minions its own movie? No, the second one you might not have seen or remember, but he he meets a woman. Well, I don't think I've seen any of them. Oh, I might have seen the first one. They're all the the first one is great, and the minions movie is great. I didn't see the minions. Movie. The minions movie is legit. It's okay. funny. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and I'm watching right now. Uh, I'm, I have a pause in the other room. The War of the Worlds from the fifties. Oh, the OG. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that on TV when I was a kid. Like in Colombia, they played it. It is interesting to see, you know, because yeah. you know, I, I told you I watched Forbidden Planet, and like it totally right. explains Star Trek. And this is another thing of that. Like there's, right. there's. I think there's sound effects that Star Trek. The original series uh-huh. stole from oh, from uh, War, War of the, the War of the Worlds. Yeah, I could see that. And you know, like in you know when in Star Trek with Kirk and Spock, and they would shoot something with their phaser, right. or someone would get shot, and it would glow and then mm-hmm. disappear. Yeah, you know, it doesn't make any sense. It's right. like you're shooting someone with a laser, and it only affects the person right. and their clothes. Yeah, and they grow red hot. Yeah. And then they and then they disappear. <laughs> and there's right. this there's this you know like how, how does that work? Like right. you you have a you have a ray that somehow infects the clothing and the and the being, <laughs> but doesn't actually do anything to the surrounding area. Right. You know what I mean? And that's directly from War of the Worlds. Wasn't it supposed to be that it gets hot or something? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, guess. But, but if it's that hot, it's like. 
it would go through you. You right, know what I mean? Right. And certainly set you on fire. It would set you on yeah. fire. It wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> cause you to grow, uh, like glow and then disappear. Well, to be fair, we don't have that technology yet, yeah. Kirk. So we don't know. So war of the worlds, it's exactly that. So I think when uh, star Trek came out, they're like, let's do that. Cause that was pretty cool. When Roddenberry was like, hmm. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so let's take a break. When we get back, uh, let's continue this, I'm sure, bothersome episode to the listeners. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break on this two, 700th, I almost said 200th, on the 700th episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, what's wrong with you? You need to do it. Go to your computer or your phone. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron, and you get access to our premium episodes that are only available to Patreons or to patrons. <laughs> and if you have trouble with the feed, email me at contact at Psychology in Seattle, and I can usually help you. Also, remember that our 10-year anniversary show is on August 11th, 2018. Uh, details pending. TBD. Also, buy my book called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. I'm working on a, an audio book for it, so Ooh. be on the lookout for that. Are you narrating it? Nice. And it is hard, man. Like, to read a book <laughs> in a way that doesn't sound weird. You Are you know? telling it like a children's story? <laughs> and then, when you see your client, make sure to smile. <laughs> so I have another gripe. All right. Uh, it's a short one. All the different cell phone connectors that exist. Oh, yeah. Cause, like, it's not a small one, actually. Because, <laughs> like... I mean, it's starting to get better now because all of Android are going to the mm-hmm. US, USB USB-C. C. But for a while, last year... Jesus, dude. So Pixel was the first to do the USB-C. Right. So while that was happening... So, so I was the... I had, I had a connector that no one else was using. You had like micro USB or... or right. Or iPhone. Right. Or iPhone, right. right. And iPhone... Um, and this was... Uh, what was the version where they got rid of the... Of the headphone plug. Was that this version? So Pixel 2 doesn't have a headphone plug. Okay. And and iPhones no longer have right. headphone plugs. Yeah. So, which I, I sort of get. I mean, and I'm a Bluetooth user now anyway. Well, so. I am now. I finally gave up. Like, I, for the longest time, I didn't want to put Bluetooth on my head. And I finally gave up. Yeah. I, I, f- I find it to be pretty um, reliable. It it works pretty well, although every now and then it gets stuck where I, it won't play the audio, and then I'm like pressing the button and it won't go, and I'm like press the button, and then I have to put them back in their little stupid case, wait, take them back out, and then it works. Yeah, it, it, tell me about it. You and know, then, and then you have Bluetooth in my in the car. Do you use Bluetooth in a car? Yeah, no, I stopped. I now it's only a USB connection because I, I does stopped that work. Using does that work all the time? In one of my cars, it works. In the other one, it works. Uh, well, you you know what happens, right? It does. It auto plays the first thing every time. Yeah. And the first thing is now, luckily, the Beatles uh, narration. So it's, it always starts with the because music. So that's not so bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So we have a listener who I don't actually have his name written down, so I apologize. But he wanted us to talk about Seattle grunge scene back in the day. And he wrote, In the episode on Chris Cornell, you were reminiscing about growing up during the grunge era of Seattle in the 90s. 
To me and to many others who were not there during that special period in time, it seems like that Seattle during that time was the cultural epicenter of all that was cool in the world. What was it like growing up during the grunge era of Seattle? (laughs) Did it feel magical? Did it feel like you were part of an important cultural moment? I am planning to visit my friends in Seattle in April, and I hope to visit the Museum of Pop Culture and see the Nirvana exhibit. Why do you think Nirvana was the band that really changed rock and roll during that time? What was so special about them? Do you, did you ever see them live? Why do you think Kurt Cobain has become such an icon, almost a spokesman of a generation? He almost seems to be like a John Lennon-like figure of, for that era. What do you think it is about him that appeals to so many people, including people who were not even born before he died? Berto, what do you think? Oh, great questions. I love it. First of all, I have a, sort of a, a, a little bit of a different take about the grunge scene. I had just moved up from Columbia. The year was 1990, and I had just started um, school in Tacoma. In high school. In high school, yeah, 10th grade. And I, I remember a couple things. First of all, I certainly was not in it early. Like I didn't know Mud Honeys and all these other early bands or whatever. I, I just knew Top 40 Radio. That's all I knew. And I move up here, and I'm starting to learn a little bit about uh, new wave music. Because right. You didn't even listen to Depeche Mode. In, in, in... I, I did because they played it on the radio, but I didn't oh. know who they were. I didn't know their name. I didn't know oh. who was in the band or anything. So what happened is my friend Ron, who was on the same school bus as me, um, we, we became friends, and we were talking music. And he's like, do you like Depeche Mode? And I'm like, um, I don't know. It's like, you don't know Depeche Mode? And then he would play me songs. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know these songs. And the same thing. is like, do you like Erasure? I'm like, so this is in 1990? 1990, yeah. Interesting. So, uh, like, Violator had come out, right? So, yeah. was, All right. So I was into that music. In the meantime, I remember clearly there was this thing happening. There were some kids at school that were straight edge, and they were getting into this, like, music they were calling grunge or something. And... There were these other kids that were not straight edge. They were more. Uh, they were wearing the flannel, in fact, and all these things. And they were getting into this thing called grunge. But specifically, they liked this band called Pearl Jam, and they liked this local band named Seaweed. And they talked about. I don't know if I had heard about Nirvana yet, but they they were talking about different bands. I immediately had a negative reaction towards this because I don't like scenes in general, and and plus. The word grunge put me off. I was like, grunge? That sounds dirty. I, I don't like that. And then I saw the album cover for Pearl Jam's 10, and it bothered the shit out of me. First of all, I'm like, Pearl Jam? That sounds disgusting. And then I see these people high-fiving, and I'm like, what? This looks terrible. It's like some college kids high-fiving. I don't want any part of this, right? I hadn't heard a single song. I just didn't want to deal with it. And I had re- really strong negative reaction against it. Now, I remember the day where I'm listening to the radio and it's the top 40 and they say, oh, the king of pop has been dethroned this week by this new song from a little Seattle band. And then all of a sudden they play it. And I'm sitting there listening and all of a sudden the speakers explode basically with sound. And I remember call when the song was over, I immediately called my friend Ty, Ty Verzoni. You've met Ty. Yeah. And I'm like, did you hear that song? 
And we were like geeking out over it. And the next day, we couldn't stop talking about it. Where did you hear it? On the radio at home. I was like oh. and, and listening to the top 40. And it, it had just beat Michael Jackson for the number one spot. Oh. It, be, it beat uh, Black or White. Wow. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is different. I had never heard music like that. Yeah. And so for me, that was the beginning of me second guessing my hatred of grunge. I was like, well, maybe this isn't so bad. And then slowly but surely, I started listening to Pearl Jam. And then I was like, okay, maybe this isn't so bad. And, and I, I eventually loved Soundgarden. There's some bands I still never got into. But yeah, I, I eventually came to like it. Interesting. For me, I grew up in outside of Seattle in the 80s, like you know, 15, 20 minutes or something. And would go into Seattle to to see music occasionally. Yeah. Um. But well, let me let me go through his questions like one by one. Yeah. So he asked, "Did it feel magical? Did it feel magical to you?" I mean, I, you were into. It's the opposite. It felt annoying. But like <laughs> once it, you know, once you were fully on board and liked it. Um. No, I still. I gotta say, I just because even with the new wave stuff. Like, I hated the gothy thing. Like, I just never liked scenes. Okay. I still don't. And so, I, I, I didn't like, I didn't, nothing of it felt magical. It's just that the good songs and the good bands, like always, I liked because I liked music. Okay. So, yeah. it wasn't, yeah. To me, I would say, yeah, it absolutely felt magical. I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on, because because my friend Chris Fyle, do you know do you remember him? He he was he listened to heavy metal and mm. like punk and stuff and there was like an uh, a sort of deep radio station that would play heavy metal. Mm. And he would and he would he was like, "Oh, listen to this. This is a Seattle band called Nirvana." And they played Bleach and, or something? And no, and they played Smells Like Teen oh, Spirit. Like, okay. Because Smells Like Teen Spirit didn't become popular for a while. Yeah. yeah it was like yeah. months like but It was like 91 when it hit, right? Around yeah, there, yeah. Yeah, 91. And he's like, oh, this band's from Seattle. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's... Because whenever anything happened... Because back then, nothing ever came out of Seattle. No. Like, barely anything. We had we had Warren Moon. <laughs> we had Hart. We had Queensryche. We Gosh, had... Those are pretty good. <laughs> we had, we had, the, we had the, the Kingsman. We had... Um, you're, you're disproving your point. <laughs> we had, we had uh, uh, Deer 23, uh, the Posies. But Queensryche had, like, one hit. Yeah, it, among heavy metal people, yeah. right? And Heart was mainly seventies yeah. and blah, blah blah. And most people didn't think of Heart as a Seattle band. Had, and had, there was also no scene, right? And you had Jimi Hendrix, and you had. Uh, so it's cool. like some bands came from Seattle, but yeah. there was no scene, right? Exactly. Well, there was kind of a scene in the sixties, but very small. Anyway, right? Um, so, so he's like, "Hey, this you know, Spencer from Seattle." And I was like, "Oh yeah, it's I you know, I've I've seen their posters because I had." Mm. They're you know walking around because I because at this point I'm in college right and I'm I'm actually living in Seattle at this point so you are seeing posters and I'm in the 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 university district which there's tons of alternative you know rock you know stuff around you know people would play in the university district at you know at college parties and stuff anyway and I was like huh that's interesting but I didn't really take to the song I just thought like okay that's great because I I was more into yeah like Depeche Mode. Uh, the posies and this kind the of the posies stuff. played at U Dove when I was there. Yeah, so when um, actually I saw that I saw uh, at Bumbershoot one year. This is before uh, Nirvana. I saw Soundgarden play, and the posies opened for them. Oh wow! So 
and the crowd was uh, not pleased with the posies in the oh, front because I was in the back, <laughs> but the but the the moshers up front yeah. were like, "Get off the stage!" And at some point, the posies were just like, "Look, the longer you like yell at us, the longer we're going to stay on stage." So they sing, "I can dream all days." No, no, that was before that came okay. out. <laughs> so that album came out uh, in response, kind of to the grunge. That's oh, okay. a much more grungy album. Okay. But previous to that, they were much more Beatlesy sounding. You know? Okay. Anyway, so. So I think okay, there's this band, but you know, to me, Mud Honey was much bigger. Uh, Mother Love Bone was 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 much bigger. You know, there there were bands that uh, were much bigger in terms of that scene of right. Seattle. But I it never in my wildest dream what what I think that anyone would pay attention to it. You know, sure. every town has a set of shitty bands that some people know about. Sure, you know what I mean. It's, so that's what I thought Nirvana would be. But then I. This is before it's number one. So this yeah. is well before the the nation or the world knows yeah. about it. I'm at a dance club downtown yeah. that doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, it's playing CNC Music Factory <laughs> and, and you know, and this is back when people actually just had records yeah. and they would just play a song and then they'd have another song and they'd have a record. That, you know, well, how did they mix between the two? Well, they, you know, they would sync it with the beat. What? But, but anyway, and, you know, me and my friends were on the dance floor and we're dancing to all the regular dance hits. And then all of a sudden, just like you said, dan, 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 and like, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Oh. The, the entire room explodes. Cause I recognized, I was like, Oh, this is from that Seattle. Yeah. This is from that Seattle band. Yeah. And I looked around the room and you know, it's just filled with like 21 year old, 22 year old yeah. uh, people. And we, as a as an entire collective, just went cra- nuts, crazy. Oh my god! And there's only one way to dance to that song. Sure, it's just bouncing up and down, yeah, yeah. And, and like you know, bobbing your head. Yeah. And it was at that moment that collective, because I, you know, I I'd, I'd heard the song, I'd sort of liked it, but to see that effect <laughs> it it had yeah. on me and my fellow Seattleites, and at that point, I just thought. Well, that's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, that'll never happen again because what what DJ is going to play a rock hit? <laughs> like that was sort of, sort of yeah. a one-off thing, you know. Kudos to you, DJ, for being on the cutting edge of yeah. that kind of thing. That'll never happen again. <laughs> and then, um, and then it started to take off into the charts, and people started actually listening to it. Right. And at that point, I was like, "Wow, you know." And then I actually, and then. <laughs> And because I never really liked Nevermind. I mean, I, I liked it okay. Uh-huh. And I thought, yeah, this is, it smells like Teen Spirit's a great track. But I, I don't think I ever owned the CD. You okay. know what I mean? It, I was much more in the Smashing Pumpkins, the Gish, you know, Siamese Dream. Um, I liked Mud Honey probably better than Nirvana. And, and really, the way that this uh, patron is writing in, it, it, he makes it seem like the grunge scene was Nirvana. But it, it became, for the rest of the world, it became Nirvana. Kind of. But to Seattleites, Nirvana was just one among, you know, a dozen bands that we considered to be, quote-unquote, grungy. Yeah. No, I get that. I, I just mean, like, even in Colombia, like, everyone knew Nirvana. Right. So, but to us in Seattle, it was it was not that way. Yeah. We understood that the world was responding to Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder, but we, but we listened yeah. to deep... Deep Soundgarden, because sure. I've been listening to Soundgarden right, right. way before. I, I was listening to Soundgarden in like 
in like 87 or something. You know yeah. what I mean? And I, I honestly think though, because he asked one of the questions like, why were, why Nirvana was so popular? Like Nirvana had super catchy songs. Right. So that's, so the reason why Nirvana really stuck out was because they purpose, Kurt Cobain purposely wrote songs that would be catchy. Yeah. Nursery rhymes. <laughs> he, he, he knew that. He's like, if yeah. you want to be popular, and he wanted to be, he was a very interesting dichotomy between desperately wanting to be popular yeah. and desperately not wanting to be popular. Tortured artist, but desperately wanting to be popular. Right. But he, he's in interviews talking about how you need to write a song that you can sing like a nursery rhyme. Yeah. Where the words are really unimportant. Yeah. And the night comes and there's dangerous and you're now entertaining. Like, it's, it's, it needs to be very simple. Row, row, row your boat. Like, literally. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I think his songwriting is amazing given the style that they limited themselves yeah. to because it's just basically rhythm guitar. Yep. Shitty bass lines and, <laughs> and amazing drums. Amazing drums. You know, like pretty. Pretty rudimentary bass lines, pretty rudimentary guitar for that. Well, matter. like it even smells like Teen Spirit. It's it's like you would think it's like oh that's so perfectly crafted, and I guess it is. But the uh, to me the most perfect craft about it is one the changes from quiet to loud. Yeah. That was just a great mechanic, and the drums. Right, the, the drums drum. are glorious. Yeah, you just you never <laughs> at the time I didn't appreciate how how important David Grohl yeah. was to the band. Until you actually listen to Foo yeah. Fighters and stuff, right. and you're like, "Oh man, David Grohl is added a lot. Is a genius." Now, of course, that voice of his, uh, Cobain's voice, totally sold the emotion. <laughs> right. So, so, so you match up. So basically, you had just like you had a guitar that sounded garagey. You yeah. Had, you had bass. You had bass guitar that sounded garagey. Right. <laughs> And then you have this voice that's just, especially on that first Nevermind album, yeah. is so just perfect because, you know, you can have punk voices that sound punk, <laughs> but they're not very appealing. That's right. And then you can have like Engelbert Humperdinck, which is appealing, right. but it's has no, <laughs> yeah. And he has that perfect kind of, and then you, and then you add in the drums and, yeah. and like everything works. Um, and so, so anyway... I want to give some more context because I think it is kind of interesting to talk about is that at the time you actually are talking about everything that I hated about pop music at that time because you're you're like four years younger than me. Yeah. And so you're 10th grade. You're all top 40. Yeah. I'm in college and – all I can do is hate top 40 music. But you probably hate it started even in the late 80s because we've talked about this. Right. You stopped liking like 88 maybe? Right. So I I looked up different uh, like top 100 hits from the late 80s and and early 90s and you got stuff like Michael Bolton. (laughs) You have have Richard Marks. Oh man. You have New Kids on the Block. You (laughs) you have Millie Vanilli. Oh. Oh, girl, you know it's true. You have you, you have Brian Adams during his during his um. Uh, Wait, what's wrong with Brian Adams? Well, his ballad days. But that's a good song. You have CNC Music Factory. Now, I had the CD for CNC Music Factory. You did? It, it it has some bangers on it, but but you know, Color Me Bad, Celine Dion, Color Me Bad, Vanilla Ice. Okay, Ice. So Ice. So baby. these are you know these are not. And then you, and then on the so that was just the top forty side. But then on the rock side, right? You had 
you had Def Leppard during their worst years. Por- poison. Por- you know, you had Poison, right? <laughs> and you had Motley Crue when they had completely sold out. You know what I mean? And you just had like hard... The only good stuff still happening was actually Guns N' Roses. Right. So, well, when Guns N' Roses and came Metallica, out... I suppose. When, when Guns N' Roses came out, they were kind of the the bridge between yeah. metal and grunge. Yeah. Like when Guns are, so Guns N' Roses comes out, Jane's Addiction is another band. Yeah. So those two bands, they took hard and hard rock and they made it alternative and artsy. Right. And gritty. And, and they didn't care about, you know, uh, the sort of glam side. Right. And the top 40 side that Motley Crue and Poison and all those and yet other. they had more top 40 hits. Right. And so, yeah. so that, so that's a definite bridge. Yeah. Like when the first time I heard smashing pumpkin, smashing pumpkins, I was like, Oh, they're just copying Jane's addiction. You know oh, I, mean? I see. <laughs> Which is, they're nothing like Jane's right, addiction. Like but that. at the time it was, it was, it was a step in that direction. Oh, it's, it's interesting. Cause when, um, when I heard the name smashing pumpkins, I also wanted nothing to do with it because I thought, oh, they're part of that grunge scene. I don't <laughs> like that. And and it was uh, both Shun and my brother that finally got me to listen to Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> when G- when Gish came out, I it was um, life altering to me. I, I listened to that album a billion times. Like <laughs> I I just couldn't get enough of that album. Um, anyway, so so that's the setting. Okay, you got right. top forty, and then. Really, really weak heavy metal music, right? And, and and like everything is plastic, nothing is real, everything is fake, everything is commercial, and every everything is electronic, like uh, electronic uh, drums, electronic keyboards, yeah. electronic guitars, right? Even 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 major rock acts were using electronic drums, yeah, because it was like, well, that's it's what you cheaper, need. Cheaper, it's quicker. You need that. Yeah. Boom, ching, boom, ching. Like everything was fake, yeah. and 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 at the time, I really felt that, and so I would seek things out that were like Husker Du and er, early REM, like Murmur and and things that were real, mm. and and you know Uncle Tupelo and um, uh, what's the the band from uh, the Midwest? Anyway, there were there were things that were real that everyone in college was sort of seeking oh, I out. See. Or going way back to like Black Sabbath and Led, <laughs> and Led Zeppelin because you, you had to go way back to find right. something that felt legitimate and real and not commercial and not electronic. Yeah, yeah. And this, this is what Nirvana and Pearl Jam capitalized on. Right. They come out with something that's top 40 but is real. It's real, yeah. And it feels real. And right. the way they talk is real. And their hair doesn't have any product in yeah. it. You know what I mean? And their clothes are crappy and they, and they're giving off this air of like, I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) The other thing was, was that, um, it felt very, uh, home to me because the way that Kurt Cobain dressed, particularly in that smells like teen spirit, uh, video was the way me and my friends dressed. Right. Because we would go to value village because we didn't want to dress like the man, oh. and and we couldn't afford clothes. Interesting. That so we would just go to Value Village, which, which, is, which is a thrift store. It's just funny because just two years later, the grunge look was in, and then you you could go to Nordstrom's and uh, right Eddie Bauer and Bon March Marche to right. buy the right clothes. And so <laughs> there there's a number of things that he's wearing in that uh, video that me and my friends wore just out of sort of necessity. His jeans had rips in it right. because you just didn't have better jeans. You wore cheap Converse or cheap tennis shoes. And then 
when you wanted a sweater because you always need to layer in Seattle yeah. because it's always you never know it's if cold it's cold and rainy. You never know yeah. what it's going to be like when you're right. walking around. So you always need layers. I was talking yeah. about layers in Seattle. And one of the things that Value Village had a ton of was cardigan sweaters. Right. <laughs> and so we, me and my friends, you know, of the, the few guys that would, we would dress, you know, Value Villagey, we had tons of those exact um, sweaters. Sweaters. And so when I saw him, I was like, oh, he's definitely from my people. Right. You know what he's I mean? He's not putting on an act. Yeah. He, he, just, he just woke up like that. The rest of the world probably looked at it as, that's a cool costume. <laughs> right. And the whole flannel thing, that goes back to like literally lumberjacks, lumberjacks yeah. and hunters. Like, yeah. like I have older siblings that wore yeah. flannel because they were outside a lot. Right. You know, it, it, the flannel back then was wool and it, yeah. and it lasted a long time. And, and so Whereas I had none of that context. So when I saw people wearing that stuff, and again, it was so because this, the move, the scene probably started like 88, right? 89, 90. Hard to define, but yeah. But anyways, I didn't become aware of any of this stuff till 91. And by then, when, when I saw people wearing flannel and stuff, they were trying to be part of that scene. So I hated like that look. <laughs> well, yeah, it's very interesting your experience one because you didn't come from that the way that no it it it, it felt like these guys came from my people yeah right you know I mean? whereas for you it doesn't feel like that plus all the people you observed doing it were adopting it yeah they as, were younger and were adopting as it. high schoolers yes. right whereas for me. We just continued. We just continued wearing flannels. Yeah. Like we didn't. We didn't. <laughs> we didn't stop. You know what I mean? Right. Or start. It just like right. I'm gonna continue wearing the flannel that my mom got me in the in the tenth yeah. grade for Christmas because she knew that I needed a good warm flannel. <laughs> part part of the thing that happened is when I was in Colombia, the only clothes I would get were my mom would send them. Like so, she would send me new clothes, and. And they were neat, like they were like Genera, you know, and OP and well, Genera, Genera is a Seattle brand. Okay, they were nice clothes, but the thing is, they were not common clothes down in Colombia, mm. and this didn't help my social stratus or whatever. Like so you looked like a weirdo. Uh, not weird, just like I had whatever clothes I had. But the kids in my class, they most of them had money because it was a private school, and so they would wear. Now it was a uniform school. Keep keep in mind, right? But they would wear like, like things that like the the shirt, their collared shirt, because you could buy a white shirt, but it could be different brands or whatever. So they would have a little bit better, and they would have a little bit better watch, and they would have this. And so I started sort of like naturally disliking, like if everyone's like, "Oh, this is the new thing. Everyone's got to get this." Totally. I started naturally disliking it because I actually couldn't get it. Right, like I was oh. like, I can't get it, but but it, I, not like I did this mental calculus. I'm just looking back and realizing that part of the reason I disliked it so much is because I couldn't be part of it, right? But then over time, I actually started realizing that there were many negatives that came with clicks and scenes, and and that was the other thing I saw societally that happened so much in Colombia that these clicks and these scenes would target other clicks and other scenes, and their vi- violence would ensue, right? And so I actually started really not liking that social aspect of like uh, even the jingoistic like our country our thing i, I started really disliking that because because totally. i started realizing wait this this only leads to sect sectar- sectarianism and and violence and dislike of others of the other so long story short i 
all that got triggered for me whenever I would see one of these little music scenes come up. And it was not that consciously I was realizing it, but but subconsciously I was like, ugh. Yeah, I mean, given the context you came from, it should be a little yeah. gross to you. Um, I really so again, I just want to stress to younger people or people who weren't in this scene is. Nirvana was just one. Yeah. You know, I, I just want to, really want to stress that. They were just one of dozens of bands that we, like, I lived in college, you know, at the time, and pe- people were constantly blasting music from their rooms, and, fr- you know, right. it's just a constant stream of music all the time. And I would say that, you know, Nevermind was, I don't know, two percent of the time. That's what would be, that's what, maybe even less than that, honestly, because, it's not like one of those albums you can really listen to like repeatedly, yeah. you know, whereas like Pearl Jam 10, you can kind of listen to that more often, mm-hmm. you know? So, so I just want to stress that, that Nirvana has become my suspicion. It, the reason for it is because every era has to have its token, uh, survivor, you know, like, uh, like from the sixties, it's the Beatles. Right. But you talk to well, people who lived through the sixties and they're like, yeah, the Beatles are great, but you know I listened to a lot of bands back then. Yeah, but, but I mean, yes, but we can't discount like they sold a ton. Their videos were very good. So their did, songs were very catchy. So did Soundgarden. So did Pearl Jam. Nah, Soundgarden didn't have as many hits. And per- Pearl Jam did. Pearl Jam did, and they've they survived, but not as well, I guess. Right? Yeah. Why though? Because yeah. because Eddie Vedder didn't kill himself. Now, that's fair. That is a fair point. And because Eddie Vedder is just as compelling as a character he's sure. he's just as interesting sure. he's just as good do you sure. know what i mean like he is a genuinely good person who has a lot of interesting things to say and is a a legit talent you know what i mean yeah and the reason why we're not plastering his face all over the place is because he didn't shoot himself i am uh, given my under my place in seattle culture i am 100% sure that if Eddie Vedder had killed himself and Kurt Cobain had not. I mean, imagine Kurt Cobain having a later career. You know, he has albums, yeah. he has albums that don't do so well. He has some tabloid sure, additional problems. Sure. Uh, he says some questionable things. Yeah. On, you know, uh, would, we be holding, would we be holding him up the way that we do today? I don't think so. I just, I, I, you're probably right. I just feel that even before he killed himself, um, Nirvana was seen by the outside world as the numero uno. Sure. And, and, you know, that holds a lot for sure. But at the same time, their second album wasn't complete. There wasn't very well. Their third album, you mean? Their third, well, after. In Utero, yeah. In Utero was not well liked. No. You know, and and so uh, they were poised to. But then they did have that uh, unplugged session. That unplugged. Very well liked. Right. Anyway. Yeah. So so I, I just want everyone to understand that it's, you can focus on whatever you want to focus on, but just understand that, as time goes on, we tend to reduce eras to very simple things. By the way, I remember that both both Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins played SNL near the same the same time frame. Uh, I don't remember when exactly, but a few months apart or something like that. And they both sounded terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw Smashing Pumpkins um, during their Siamese Dream tour. Uh huh. And they sounded like, especially uh, Cobain. Uh, His no, voice, not Cobain. Um, oh, uh, sorry, <laughs> and it's, uh, uh, Billy Cor- Corgan. Cor- Corgan. <laughs> Corgan. His voice was so bad. Yeah. I mean, he has a very fragile voice. Yeah. 
Um, and Nirvana, same thing. Same like thing. I, I had friends, so I never saw to answer his question. I, I never saw them live, but I had opportunities to. Yeah. But I never went because they were considered to be very shitty compared to the other Seattle bands. Yeah. You know, Tad, uh, Mud Honey, um, Fastbacks. Like these were like legit. Seattle bands, Soundgarden, right. and Nirvana was just like you know one of the shitty kind of you know secondary ones, and so I I, I did see Mudhoney and these other bands and definitely liked them, and I had friends Chris Huber right. went to see uh, Nirvana and they said they but they saw Nirvana and like several other bands okay and they said Nirvana was the shittiest one, <laughs> so um and uh it it took them writing the songs for Nevermind and recording them perfectly and actually getting uh, Dave Grohl into the band. But anyway, I really knew that Nirvana was a phenomenon. Because again, at the time, I'm listening to lots of music. I never ran out and bought Nevermind. I never right. needed to because it was constantly on the radio and all my friends had You it. had Siri. And- <laughs> yeah. And, but I did know that... But I didn't really know that Nirvana was such a thing until this legitimate band had uh broken up in that I sort of knew of through friends and they had reached out to me since I was a singer guitarist and said we want to start a band like Nirvana. Oh. And so will you come over to our practice space uh-huh. and uh the three of us will jam. And the and these were legit this was a legit bassist and a legit drummer. Legit musicians. And I was, you know, like 21 and didn't know anything about uh-huh. about that kind of music and i went over and like tried you know <laughs> but i just don't have that kind of sensibility yeah and it went nowhere but like i was asked please complete our trio <laughs> and make us into nirvana into nirvana and the you know and again these aren't they weren't they didn't want to do a cover band they just wanted to do yeah something like something nirvana, like nirvana yeah, yeah. Um, that's when you knew, oh, Nirvana is the thing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, like these legit musicians want to basically copy Nirvana? Like that's yeah. just strange to me. That is interesting. Um, you ask, uh, patron, did it feel like a like we were part of an, an important cultural movement? Um, not at the moment, but there were there were there were things that happened. Like, because um, in, in my culture from Seattle, we considered ourselves to be one of the shittiest cities in, in the nation. <laughs> like whenever I would travel and I would say, they like, where are you from? I'm like, Oh, from Seattle. They're like, is that Alaska? <laughs> like, like that's what they would say. Yeah. Or, or they'd be like, where's Seattle? And I'd be like, well, it's in the Northwest. And it's like, Oh, <laughs> is it, is it snowy there all the time? Like they, there was just no, no awareness. Concept, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, I, or if they did know about us, they were just like, Oh yeah, the Sonic Supersonics are from there or something, or the Seahawks or so, you know, they just really didn't have any knowledge, and and so there was no social cachet to it. You know, you had L.A., you had Miami and Louisiana <laughs> and or uh, New Orleans, and you had New York, and you know, even Minneapolis was cooler. And uh, anyway, so it was, and then I lived in Ballard, which back then was like the crappiest neighborhood in Seattle. <laughs> Uh, which it has since become one of the cooler ones. Anyway, there was nothing cool about Seattle. And then overnight, suddenly Seattle was not only cool, but the coolest place on earth to the point where I had friends who went, you know, uh, women who were friends, they come back from LA and they're like, 
they're like, Kirk, you're not gonna you're not gonna believe this. I was out at a club, and these these guys came up and hit on us, and their opening line was, "We're from Seattle." Ah. <laughs> these these guys, these LA guys, walk up to us in a club and say, "Hey, we're from Seattle." Oh my gosh! And and since these since these young women friends of mine were from Seattle, they're like, "Oh, well, what neighborhood?" <laughs> and the guys are like, "Uh, downtown." No, no, they just said, "Oh, well, you know, Seattle," because uh, in their head, Seattle, Seattle is just like, like thing, just like one neighborhood. Yeah, you know, it'd be like saying, "I'm from New York City." Oh, you know what part? Oh, you know, know New, York, the New York City. Statue of Liberty. I'm from the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no one says, you know, if you said, I'm from Seattle, and you said what part, you, no one would say, oh, Ballard, you know. you know. Or just, you know, <laughs> Seattle. Like, no one would say that. You would say, like, the particular neighborhood. Yeah. There's there's probably, like, 20 distinct neighborhoods right. in Seattle that you could say you're from. Anyway, so, th- when, so that when I heard that, I was like, whoa. When guys are walking up to girls in clubs and their opening line is i'm from yeah then i was like wow something's happening here because because just two months ago (laughs) if you said you're from seattle they would run away from you You (laughs) well okay so do you remember there was this infamous article that was published um where they had all these grunge terms yeah okay so the gal that worked at sub pop that that did that as a lark she spoke at this one event, and 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 I I saw her speak, and um, so the back so the backstory is on this is some major publication like Time or someone just called Sub Pop because Seattle was such a thing, yep, and they just called Sub Pop, which is the label that had Nirvana and other bands, and they were like, "Hey, we want the scoop on the Seattle lingo," yep, and this and this woman, she's like, "Oh my god, this is so dumb." And so she just made up a bunch of words, <laughs> and then they printed it. Yep. <laughs> and, and there's like all these like ridiculous, you know, because they're like, you know, what does grunge mean? And, you know, and so she just made up all these really funny things. And so she spoke, and she was talking about how um, it, it, at that time, they even sub pop, they had not realized just the extent of what was happening. Yeah. But that phone call, made her sort of realize part of it. It was even though she she made a fool out of them, but um it was really interesting. Yeah, so for me, I was playing music in Seattle at the time, basically in a in a what you could call a grunge band. Uh we were a garage band, uh you know, two guitars, bass, drums, and we were uh so so there I am in Seattle, and you're just like a cobnobbler. Yeah, that's one of the words she said. Yeah. Is that like a poser or something? Yeah. Cobb nobbler. Like it was like, Seattle was sort of like a harsh realm at the time. A harsh realm. So, um, so for me, it was very um, applicable to my life because suddenly every band in Seattle had a chance of making a million dollars. It was, it was a very, it was, it, I went from being in a band in Seattle, and and when you're in a band, you know countless other bands. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you play shows with other bands. And I went from being, you know, all of us went from thinking like we'll never go anywhere because right. not only do we are we not Millie Vanilli, <laughs> but we live in Seattle. So even right. if we were Millie Vanilli, you still no, wouldn't get picked up. <laughs> no one's gonna like us. Like there's nothing. You know, the music scene's in L.A., New York. Yeah. It's not in Seattle. We went from that 
to suddenly actually having a crack right. at at international stardom because there were like Nirvana would go to a sh- go to the MTV Music Awards right. and wear a band shirt for like the Melvins yeah and suddenly the Melvins would be like gold records all yeah. of a sudden right. and it was and it was like oh my god like all we got to do and and bands left and right were getting signed by major labels um, a band that. Uh, my band actually uh, felt pity for Harvey Danger. Oh, right. You know, Flagpole Sitta. Um, we felt really bad for them because no one ever came to their shows. Uh-huh. And so we would actually bring them along like a little brother to our shows because we felt bad. Because we, we we liked them. We, everyone yeah. except for the lead singer we liked, actually. <laughs> the lead singer uh, we didn't like. But everyone else we we loved. And so And then they got picked up and they had a hit song. And so... So bands were just going left and right. And and the other thing that was very interesting for us at the time was that suddenly there were a million venues to play in Seattle because suddenly you had all these people that would that wanted to go to a rock show. Right. You know, whereas just a few years previous, like um, when before Nirvana took off, there were pretty much only like three or four places that you even could play in Seattle. Oh, okay. You had, you had uh, the Ditto. You had the OK Hotel, and you had Central Saloon, and maybe Blue Moon was having bands back then. But you had very few venues. After Nirvana and Pearl Jam, you had, I, I'm, I'm guessing, a hundred different venues. <laughs> there was one venue in Ballard that was, uh, it was a Chinese restaurant Oh yeah, called the New World. New World. I've heard of this place. Which... It was just a Chinese restaurant, but they—they're like they like. Whoa, we should have some grunge bands here. <laughs> so they actually bought a business next door and expanded into it and made one of the best stages in Seattle. I think you told me about this with place. with one of the best sound systems, and it was a Chinese restaurant. Okay, <laughs> and so you know, and every night you'd have three bands, right. and and it and it was like one of our go to places that we would play. There was in the in Pioneer Square. There was an Indian restaurant called India Taj, mm-hmm. and we played there regularly. At <laughs> uh, an Indian restaurant. In, in, uh, off of uh, Pioneer Square, there was a coffee shop called Dutch Ned's <laughs> that we played at regularly. You oh, know what I mean? They're, they're every, everyone wanted the grunge bands to play, right. and, and so we had so many different places that – and there were – audiences who would just come to watch <laughs> shitty bands play. You know what's what's so interesting? Um I started at UW in 93. And I had a I had a shitty band too, right? And it never occurred to us to go try to play a show at a club. Why? I don't know. We thought we our, we thought our options were limited to Hey, uh, such and such is having a frat party. They said we might be able to play there. Yeah. Or, hey, uh, the Asian community is having an event. We could play there. Or the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers is having an event. Maybe we could play an event there. Well, I'm here to tell you (laughs) that's where you played. You played in the Hispanic Hispanic Engineers Society. (laughs) Oh, my God. And we actually played Smashing Pumpkins. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, there were so many venues, and it was such a great time. There were so many great bands, and and um, and so much energy, and and everyone believed that they could be big. You know right. what I mean? Like everyone was vying to be big, and it was it was a it was it felt like a magical time. Yeah. Um, 
so just a little bit more on Kurt Cobain because I don't feel like I gave him enough um, credit. I I'm a Kurt Cobain nerd. I've beca- I didn't I wasn't back in the day. Yeah. But in my older age, I've watched a lot of documentaries, a lot of interviews. There's just one interview with him at the Edgewater Hotel on a balcony that I've watched. I, I've seen that one. I've watched it like five times. Yeah, it's it's great. It's the <laughs> the interviewer is terrible. Yeah. But she's so real and and he's just he's just he's great you know yeah. Kurt Cobain he just answers all the questions honestly yep. he's kind of funny and and I because the interviewers the, the interviewers trying to force a narrative right and and it is kind of like the grungy narrative and then he's just like answering yeah real right and I can't tell you how familiar the way that he is in that interview yeah. it feels to me because me and all my friends were exactly like, like that. Like you knew people just like that. Yeah. And and the attitudes were there, you know, because like I said because we were so anti-popularity right. because we knew we were never going to be popular. Uh-huh. That's where that whole thing comes from. Like if you if you're from a town and from a genre yeah. that will never be popular, then you just say, "Well, fuck it. I don't want to be popular. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to try. I don't It's ever- like me with the with the clicks with the yeah. scenes. So and just the way that he talks about things and like um, I should mention Almost Live. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. It was like a local oh, Saturday. I used to love Almost Live. Well, all those all those grunge guys watched that show. They right. were on the show sometimes. Because um, the funny thing is, even though I am younger than you, I moved when it was the height of this stuff. Like, right. I, I remember that very first, maybe it was the, yeah, it was the second weekend I was here. Uh, I got together with these two new friends, and it was Saturday, and they're like, okay. Well, tonight, like, we'll, we'll watch uh, Almost Live and Saturday Night Live. And I was so confused. I, I For some reason, I had never heard of Saturday, Saturday Night Live. Probably because in Colombia, this was not a thing. And so, but th- they said live, almost Saturday, like, they said so many live words. And I'm like, wait, wait, is this a live event? Are we, it's like, no, no, it's on TV. Oh, okay, but but it's live. And it's it's like one show or two shows? Like, no, it's two shows. One is Almost Live. It was Saturday Night Live. okay. But it's the same people. It's like, no, it's just one scene. Like, it was so confusing to me. But I remember we watched them. And yeah, it was awesome. Like, I remember laughing. It was great. Yeah, they had all these, like, Seattle jokes and skits and stuff. Kurt Cobain, in his interviews and the way he comes across, he, he comes across as very real, very honest. Um, he's insecure and he's not afraid to talk yeah. about it. He, he had a lot of really smart observations of fame. And he was very generous with his popularity in terms of uh, spreading out around the credit and everything yeah. you know he he was just he was a humble guy very likable guy so i get now the same can be said for for eddie vetter by the yeah. way so it's not like you know if you eddie vetter is a great guy so um but yeah it was an amazing time um there were uh, so many bands. You had Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Tad, Temple of the Dog, Fastbacks, Mudhoney, Tree People, Soundgarden. Out, you know, all these bands are were huge at the time, yeah. and they were all from my stupid little town. <laughs> and they were international. Uh, Alice in Chains, Mother Love Bone, Screaming Trees, Green River, Melvins, L Seven, Hazel was a local band. Sleater Kinney, you know, basically yeah. kind of came up. Candlebox, which is a shitty band, but you know. Hammerbox, good, you know, Carrie Acree. Oh, Hammerbox, uh, the guitarist from Hammerbox was a co-worker of mine a few years later. That We worked m- together. My 
guitarist in my band bought his guitar rig. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but Carrie Acre, or Acre, I don't know how to pronounce her name, she was a barista in the music uh, building at UW. Wow. And so, but this is before the whole grunge thing. You know, so the grunge thing was a local, there was local fame. You yeah. know what I mean? We never thought it would branch out from Seattle. Right. But so me and my friends would like go to her, um, her, you know, uh, espresso stand and be like, she's in Hammerbox. <laughs> she's the singer from Hammerbox. You know? So yeah, it, 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 it definitely felt like something had happened, but almost as quickly as it happened, it was over. <laughs> it was like, yeah. as soon as, you know, there's a red carpet event and some interviewer shoves a microphone in Sharon Stone's face and says, what's your favorite Seattle band? And she's like, Pearl Jam. And then the next, you know, celebrity comes and they, what's your favorite Seattle band? Soundgarden. You know, I would, I knew, I was like, oh, you know, because the whole thing was based on realness right. and alternativeness. Plus, plus then you, right around then, you have a second British coming, you know, because you have like Oasis, Radiohead, you have like all these new, like new bands showing up and a, a new sound that was trumping what now started feeling like the old grungy sound. Right. And so it was a blip in time and we're talking in terms of my life and experience yeah. it was probably like a, a year maybe six yeah. months where because remember i remember like mid 90s what became really cool was like blur oasis uh pulp uh all the you know like a lot of elliot smith oh well yeah and certainly it varied like it started veering in a few different directions because the the part well, and then you got, then you got like massive attack, and um, yeah, and the electronic stuff started really coming up too. Yeah. But I like Elliot Smith to me was sort of like the offshoot of the the unplugged, right? You know, well, he was sort of local, <laughs> yeah, Portland, you know, and so, um, but yeah, it it, it was um, it was definitely you know I can't think of a better time to have been in a garage band other than maybe being in London and. Um, Liver, sure. Liverpool in the sixties, yeah. you know, like to be a, a singer guitarist in a in a garage band uh, at the age of twenty one <laughs> and twenty two, playing at different clubs in Seattle uh, at the height of the grunge era in right. Seattle, with dozens upon dozens of clubs to play in, and and you know so many people wanting to listen to that kind <laughs> of stuff, and people just looking at you like you're going to be the next Kurt Cobain. Right. Uh, yeah, it was a magical time. That's awesome. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... Dan, 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 you deserve... <laughs>